0: Church, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them, please, to the third chapter of the book of Jonah as we continue through our study, our short little study through this amazing book called the book of Jonah. As we know, Jonah is not a book about a fish. It's not a book about Nineveh or the Ninevites. It's not even a book primarily about Jonah himself. It's a book about God. And God is presented to us in the book of Jonah as a loving, patient, caring God, a merciful God, but a God who hates sin and evil, so much so that he sends judgment because of it. But we're also presented with a God who loves people and has mercy on those who turn from their sin and evil and turn to him. Chapter one was all about Jonah running from God. God gave Jonah a message that he wanted him to deliver to the people of Nineveh because their evil and their violence and their sin had become too great for him. But instead of obeying God, Jonah runs away from God and runs away from God's mission for him. He goes down to the coastal city of Joppa. He gets on a ship headed to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction. God sends a storm to interrupt his running away from him. And when the sailors find out who Jonah is and what he's done, they throw him overboard. And God mercifully appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. And he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Last week, we learned that chapter 2 was all about Jonah repenting. Or rather, it was all about God repenting leading Jonah to repent, taking him to a place of repentance. And Brian noted that as from Jonah's own mouth, we learn that God is sovereign in salvation. And sometimes God's sovereign mercy comes in the form of discipline, like a storm. But other times it comes in the form of blessing, And kindness and rescue like a fish and being kept alive in the middle of that storm in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. But whether it's the descending mercies of blessing and kindness, God's mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. And so, being led by God to repentance, Jonah repented in chapter 2. And the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. And that's where we find Jonah here at the beginning of chapter 3. And so we've learned so far that like Jonah, we're all prone to run from God. We're prone to run from his presence and run from his task that he's given to us, run from the mission that he's set before us. We're runners. But we've also learned that like with Jonah, God relentlessly pursues us to bring us back to him and his sovereign mercy in our lives whether it's his discipline or his blessing and kindness is meant to lead us to repent of our running and come back to him and so as we look now at Jonah in chapter 3 freshly vomited onto dry land by the fish what will we see next what we'll see next is that God in his kindness still wants to use him. He still wants to use a selfish, imperfect prophet to warn unbelievers of impending judgment because of their sin and evil. And when they repent, God relents. So let's read Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah The second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together as your people. We thank you for the spirit of worship that we've already been a part of this morning we pray father that you be you've been pleased not only with the words that we've spoken but with the heart that motivated them and father as we turn now to your word we pray that you would keep us in that spirit of worship bowing before you as we hear from you speak to us father father i pray that you would remove me from this stage that you would remove me from any focus or attention And that we, your people, would hear from you. God, I ask for the glory of your name, that you would sanctify saints, and that you would save sinners for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a story about God, who still wants to use a selfish, imperfect prophet. To warn unbelievers of impending judgment that is coming because of their evil. And that when they repent, God relents. And so there are four key lessons for us in the third chapter of Jonah that I want us to, to focus on and highlight this morning as we walk through this story together. And then having learned those four lessons, seek to bring application to our own lives today. The first lesson that we learn is that God uses imperfect people to deliver his message to a lost and dying world. God uses imperfect people to declare his message to the world. In verse one, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And so right off the bat, we learn that God is a God of second chances. Jonah gets a second chance here. I don't know about you, but if it was me, if I was God in this situation, I probably would not have given Jonah a second chance. God didn't have to, but he did. God could have said to Jonah, Jonah, I thank you for your repentance. That is good and right. But the reality is, Jonah, you have you have disqualified yourself from serving as one of my prophets. Thank you for your repentance. Now go home. And that would have been fair. And from what we know of Jonah in the following chapter, Jonah probably would have preferred that. But God gives him a second chance. gives him a do-over. And church, aren't you glad that our God is a God of second chances? Who among us would be here today? if God wasn't a God of second chances. In fact, some of you might be here today precisely because God is giving you a second chance. Maybe you've been running from God and he's brought you here this morning to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. If so, then friend, friend, this is your do-over. This is your second chance here. So so don't miss the opportunity this morning to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this opportunity to get right with God. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you've been running from the mission that God has for you. Like Jonah, you've been running away from the responsibility of delivering his message to the lost people that he's placed around you. Listen, friend, God is a God of second chances. And he delights to use broken, imperfect vessels like you and I to be his ambassadors. Because not only had Jonah blown his first chance, but the repentance that he came to in the belly of the fish, as we saw last week, was really just a half-hearted repentance. As Brian noted last week, after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah repented and returned to the presence of the Lord. He he remembered the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. And in a sense, he came back to the Lord. But what Jonah didn't do in the belly of the fish was have a change of heart and mind toward the people of Nineveh. As we'll see next week in chapter 4, when when God relents and and he doesn't bring destruction on the Ninevites, Jonah is going to throw a temper tantrum. He's going to get angry. He's going to get depressed about that. Why? Because his repentance wasn't perfect. And he was still in process like you and I are. And God still had some work to do on Jonah's heart, which he will do in chapter 4. But here in chapter 3, Jonah is still very much imperfect. He's selfish self-centered, he's still pious and he doesn't want to do what God is asking him to do. He does it, mind you, he obeys, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to do this as is evidenced by his reaction as we'll see next week and also as is evidenced, I believe, in how he obeys. After all, what is his message there in verse 4? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Where's the grace in that? Where's the call to repentance in that? Now granted, that may not have been the sum total of all that Jonah preached in Nineveh. Maybe it's just a, a, a summary, but, but by way of summary from Jonah's own mouth, as he writes this later, by his own admission, it has no grace and no overt call to repentance. Why? Why? Because in his heart, he doesn't want them to repent. And he doesn't want them to repent because he knows that if they do, God will relent. And he will show grace and he will show mercy and he will not destroy them. And he doesn't want that. Incredible, isn't it? He who had just been shown immeasurable grace and mercy by God had none to offer the people of Nineveh. What a hard-hearted prophet Jonah was. But church, this is good news for us because we're imperfect people too. We too are selfish, self-centered, self-righteously pious, often hard-hearted as well. We, like Jonah, we run from God. We run from his presence. We run from his mission that he's given to us. We run to sin. We run to other gods. We run to other pleasures and delights. We all get on ships headed away from his plan for us. And even when we come back to him, often our repentance is only half-hearted. And though we go through the motions of obedience, sometimes we don't do it for the right reasons. Far too often, our motives are impure. Even when we're on mission for him, holding out the gospel to unbelievers. And yet, like with Jonah, God wants to use us anyways. In spite of our running, in spite of our half-hearted repentance, in spite of our impure motives, we, imperfect jars of clay, are God's divinely ordained means of bringing the gospel to a lost and dying world. Why? Why? Why would he use people like us for such an important task? Well, Paul, the murderer-turned-apostle, answers that question when he writes to Corinth in the second letter to them. In 2 Corinthians 4-7, Paul has been talking about how the gospel is a light. And it's a light that displays the glory of God as it illuminates the face of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, But we have this treasure, this treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. God wants to use people who are imperfect, people like us who are still in process, people who still struggle with running, God wants to use people like us, jars of clay, broken vessels. Why? To show that the surpassing power to save, the surpassing power to bring to repentance, the surpassing power to transform from death to life, belongs to him, not to us. So brother or sister, don't let Satan or your indwelling sin nature convince you that God can't use you or that God doesn't want to use you for his kingdom purposes. He does and he will because that's how he displays his immeasurable glory. That's the first thing that we learn from this chapter. God uses imperfect people to declare his message to the world. The second lesson that we learn is that God's message that he declares through imperfect people is a message of warning. It's a message of warning of impending judgment because of sin. Let's look again briefly at the message that God gives to Jonah to deliver to the people of Nineveh. Again, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So after a day's journey, he's only still going into the city which tells us the enormity of this city how great the city is how huge it is as we were told in verse 3 it is a 3 days journey in breadth this is a massive city and so he's going into the city a full days journey and he begins to preach and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown eight words in the english five words in hebrew now i know what some of y'all are thinking i know i know what you're thinking when is Ken going to deliver a sermon that short, right? Well, keep dreaming dreamin', because I'm not. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is all that uh, Jonah preached here. I do think that what he preached was short and concise, and he preached it over and over again. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, this wasn't prophecy. Nowhere are we told in this book that this is a word of prophecy of something that was going to happen. Rather, this is a word of warning. This is a warning of judgment. And it's a warning because the judgment to come was conditional. And it was conditional on the response of how the people respond to the warning. God would later lay out how he operates like this as he speaks through the prophet Jeremiah as he prophesies to the kingdom of Judah. In Jeremiah chapter 18, listen to what God says through Jeremiah in verse 7 and following. God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, if that nation, and here's the conditional part, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do to it. And if, any, if at any time, here's the converse, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, and I am devising a plan against you. So return every one of you from his evil way, and amend your ways and your deeds. Of course, we know the rest of the story. People of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, did not turn from their evil ways, and God did send destruction in the form of Babylonian conquest and exile. But the biblical principle here is clear. The warning of judgment is a real and true warning and is itself a call to repent. It's a call to turn and avert the impending judgment. And, and this was clear to the people of, of Nineveh. They, we know that it was clear to them because they ended up repenting. But also we know that it was clear to them because in their repentance they were hoping that judgment would be averted. They knew that it was a very real and true warning because they were hoping it would be averted by their repentance. Listen to the voice of the king in verse 9. After commanding everyone in the land to repent, he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the warning of judgment is conditioned on our response to that warning. If we respond rightly, then impending judgment is averted. If we respond wrongly, then impending judgment, it's still impending. And so Jonah's message, which he received from God, was a warning judgment. It was a, it was a warning of judgment. And church, the message that God has entrusted to the church the gospel that he's given to us to deliver the people of our Nineveh, the unbelievers outside of these walls who are lost and headed for a Christless eternity, both in our city and around the world, the message that he's entrusted to us is a message of warning, a warning of impending judgment. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the message he's entrusted to us, is both bad news and good news. And in fact, if we don't share the bad news part of the good news, then how can the good news part really be good? How is the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection good news if we don't understand the bad news that our sin and our rebellion against God has doomed us to an eternity of punishment An eternity of separation from God. Apart from the latter, the former is just news. What makes it good news is that it fixes and resolves the bad news that we're sinners and we deserve and are hopelessly destined to spend an eternity apart from God. And if that bad news is true, and we know that it is, and we don't warn people of that bad news then we're short-selling the gospel. So much so that you could say that we're, in fact, altering the gospel itself and offering them something other than the biblical gospel. Now, I want to circle the wagons here for a moment. This is something that's just for us. I hardly ever speak out against another pastor or church. I don't remember the last time I did so because to do so is a very serious thing. But when a pastor, especially a well known pastor, communicates a message that alters the gospel, that is a very serious thing as well. And so it is with great trepidation, but also great concern for the gospel itself, that I warn you, church, and anyone listening. of the gospel-altering message that is coming from Andy Stanley and North Point Community Church and Gwinnett Church down the street, which is just a satellite of North Point. Andy Stanley has been saying things for the last several years that have been troubling at best, but the messages that have been coming from him recently have taken this to a new level, one that I believe qualifies as heresy. North Point's recent Unconditional Conference and Stanley's later follow-up defense of that conference have essentially given LGBTQ people a pass on their sin. While he later gave lip service to a biblical sexual ethic, affirming that marriage is between a man and a woman, that anything outside of that is in fact sin, he later doubled down and said that for some people that is, quote, unsustainable and so who are we to draw lines where God draws circles church that's no different than telling an alcoholic woman or an abusive husband hey if living sober or not beating your wife no longer is sustainable for you that's okay because God draws circles and not lines church hear me that is rubbish that is not the gospel. While Stanley admittedly regularly calls for people to believe in Jesus, what he doesn't do is call people to repentance. At least not those in the LGBTQ lifestyle. As if that temptation to sin is somehow more powerful than all the others, such that the power of the gospel can't change them. And again, that is rubbish. As Michael Clary, pastor in Cincinnati and author of the book, God's Good Design, put it this week, Christianity without repentance is no Christianity at all. And so if we do not warn sinners of the need to repent, then we're not giving them the full gospel. Clary goes on to say, a gospel without repentance is a hopeless half gospel that leaves people in their sin. Calling sinners to repent assumes the hope that they can change in the power of the gospel, and that is good news. Friend, the message that we've been given to deliver to the lost people around us includes a warning of judgment for sin. May we not be counted among those who either out of cowardice because of the growing secularity of the culture around us or because of a disbelief And the power of the gospel to both save and change, may we not be counted among those who refuse to warn sinners of the coming judgment. May we warn them, and then may we call them to respond to that warning, which is the third lesson that we glean from this passage, that the only hope for a sinful world is repentance and faith. We see both faith and repentance in this story of the Ninevites as they respond to Jonah's warning of impending judgment. First, we see their faith as verse 5 begins with, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed the God of Israel. They believed this word. And then verse 5 goes on to show us their repentance. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, did they truly come to faith in God? Was this genuine conversion to the God of Israel? Or was this some kind of foxhole conversion just to avert destruction and judgment? Well, we know that it was genuine repentance, at least on the part of many of them, because God, in fact, relented from the destruction that he was going to bring to Nineveh. And so, at least for many of them, this was, in fact, true repentance. And for some, it was also genuine faith. Genuine conversion to Yahweh. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus references the miracle of Jonah, he says this, that the men of Nineveh, Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So at least some of the people genuinely repented and genuinely converted to faith in the God of Israel because according to Jesus, these converted Ninevites will rise up in the judgment and condemn the unbelieving, unrepented, and unconverted Pharisees whom Jesus was calling out in Matthew chapter 12. So I want us to look briefly at the, at the response of the people of Nineveh and the king himself, and, and, and I want us to put together a portrait of true repentance. What does it look like? When someone genuinely repents of their sin, there are seven characteristics here of things that true repentance must include. First, we've already mentioned it, believing faith. The people of Nineveh believed God. You can't have saving faith without turning from your sin, and you can't turn from your sin without also necessarily turning to Christ in faith. So believing faith must accompany repentance if it is to be true. Secondly, true repentance includes genuine sorrow for sin. Uh, Fasting and, and wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth was... Uh, The clothing of the very poorest of the poor of that day. And and, and these together were an outward demonstration of one's sorrow over sin. And so what we have here is a picture of the people of Nineveh expressing deep sorrow over their sin. They're not just sorry that they got caught. They're sorry, they're sorrowful that they have offended a holy God. Thirdly, true repentance includes sincere humility. In verses 6 and following, we see the king himself repent. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So look at the movement of the king there. He gets off his royal throne. He takes off his royal raiment. He puts on sackcloth, the clothing of the poorest of the poor, an expression of sorrow over sin and repentance of evil, And he sits, not back down on his throne, but he sits on a throne of ashes. Another outward expression of inner sorrow and repentance. But the point here is that this was not just any Joe. This was the king. This was the king of Nineveh demonstrating significant humility in his repentance. Listen, true repentance will not happen if one remains stubbornly prideful. Humility must accompany it if it is to be genuine. Fourth characteristic of true repentance is that it includes a sense of desperation. And that's what I see in the king's proclamation. I see desperation because he's not only calling the people to fast and put on sackcloth and call out to Jonah's God, but he's also calling the animals to do the same, right? He calls the herds of cattle and the flocks of sheep and all of the beasts to do that as well. Now, I don't know what it's like for you know, a, a cow to, to put on sackcloth or, or, or an animal to cry out to God, but, but what I see here is, is the king expressing a sense of desperation that if we don't genuinely and wholeheartedly repent of our evil and wickedness, then we will be undone. How far is that? from the cheap grace that we sometimes espouse today when we only half-heartedly repent. Oh, that we would be and have the same kind of sense of desperation that this king had, that if we are not genuine in our repentance, we are, we are to be pitied, we are undone. And then fifth, true repentance includes an earnest plea to God. God not enough that we feel sorry for our sin. We must communicate that sorrow to God. In verse 8, the king says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. The word there for mightily connotes uh, earnestness and forcefulness. This was an earnest plea for God to forgive them and turn from his wrath against them. If you offend someone else in your life, But you never verbalize your sorrow for having hurt them. You never beg them for forgiveness. How are they going to forgive you? They can't. Not in any transactional sense. Not in any sense that restores and repairs the relationship. Your repentance is not true and it's not real unless it's, it's accompanied by an earnest plea for forgiveness. The same is true in our offense against God. We must earnestly cry out to God and beg his forgiveness. Sixth, true repentance also must include a turning from sin. At the end of verse 8, the king says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This goes to the very heart of what repentance is. Repentance is a turning away from. To turn from sin, to repent of sin is to turn away from that sin And do it no more. And if there is no turning from sin, then there is no true repentance. And by the way, this is why it's sometimes very difficult to discern true repentance in someone. Because anyone can turn from sin in a moment, but true repentance is a turning from sin that endures. And sometimes that can only be discerned over time. And then lastly, true repentance also includes, as we see here, a dependence on God For forgiveness. We see this. uh, The king's dependence on God. For forgiveness in verse 9. When he says who knows. Who knows. God may turn. And relent. And turn from his fierce anger. So that we may. Not perish. In other words. Subjects of mine. We must repent. We must turn from our evil and wickedness. But that's all we can do. The rest is up to God. Who knows if God will relent? That's up to Him. We are, in a sense, He's saying, we are at His mercy. Wholly dependent on Him for forgiveness. You see, repentance is not simply going through the motions of fasting and putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes or even simply turning from sin. It's much more inward in our heart than it is outward in our actions. And only God sees the heart. So only God is the true and only arbiter as to whether or not our repentance is genuine or not. But as New Testament Christians, we can know and be assured that if our repentance is genuine and true, God will forgive. Or as the fourth lesson from our passage says, when sinners repent... God relents. When sinners genuinely repent, God relents. He forgives. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So what happened here? Did God change his mind? Was... Jonah's prophecy of doom and destruction a false prophecy? No, we said earlier that this is not a word of prophecy, this is a word of warning. And God lays out in Jeremiah 18 how he handles that. God didn't change his mind because God never changes. Mark that down. He never changes. Oh, what a great truth and Characteristic the immutability of God is. The immutability of God, he never changes. This is one of the defining characteristics of the God of Scripture. James 1:17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In Numbers 23:19, Moses tells us that God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God didn't change his mind here. And so what are we to make of him relenting and not destroying Nineveh? Well, first we should admit that this is not the first time that we've seen this on the pages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 6, before the story of Noah, God looks out at the expanse of mankind, and he says this The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And then, verse 6 And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What's going on with God's regret of having made man? That's what Bible scholars call an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is, is when we ascribe to God a human quality, characteristic, emotion, whatever, in order to help finite man understand an infinite God. See, when we regret something that we've done, it's because we've done it wrongly or we've done something wrong. And God can do neither. God does no wrong and he can do nothing wrongly. But he can lament that he has to do something that he would prefer not to have done, but he must do it in order to bring about his perfect and divine will. And the best way for us to articulate what's going on in that is to ascribe to God the human emotion of regret. Similarly, in Exodus chapter 32, we know the story well. Israel makes a golden calf and worships the golden calf, and God is rightly angry at Israel because of this, and he says, I will destroy Israel, but Moses intercedes. He prays on behalf of the Israelites, and he asks for God to relent, and God relents. It's not that God changed his mind in that It's not that his judgment, it's not that he changed his mind. It was that his judgment in that instance was so sure, it was so deserved and so just because of Israel's rebellion and idolatry that the best way to humanly understand it was to say that he relented. Something similar is happening here in Jonah chapter 3. God doesn't change his mind about destroying Nineveh. It's not that God's omniscience couldn't see beyond the veil as to whether or not the Ninevites would repent or not. He knew full well how they would respond to this message. But the warning of judgment would have had no teeth whatsoever for either the people of Jonah's day or the people of today unless God was humanly described as relenting from his course of action to destroy Nineveh. Because the people of Nineveh, from the greatest to the least of them, repented in accordance somehow with God's sovereign and divine plan, they showed genuine sorrow and humility, they turned from their evil ways, and as a result, God relented, and he did not wipe them out. And what does this mean for us? Well, it means that God's wrath against us is real. God's wrath against our sin is a very real thing. And it must be satisfied. There will be a punishment for your sins and my sins. There will be. It's real. And it's coming. There's real judgment that's coming for sin. Someone is going to need to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. It will either be us or by the grace of God, it will have been Jesus himself. Jesus came to satisfy the wrath of God against our sins. He came to be our substitute we deserve to pay. And when we repent and believe, God relents from sending us through that judgment. And instead, all of our sins are set upon his son, the Lord Jesus. And he takes on the punishment that we deserve to pay. So those are the four lessons that we walk away with. Let me briefly conclude with just some words of application from those. First, Because God uses imperfect people to declare his message of hope to the world, friend, don't let the enemy keep you from engaging in the mission that he has for you. Don't let him keep you from engaging in the task of holding out the gospel to the people around you by pointing his crooked finger at you and telling you that you're not good enough to tell people about Jesus. Because God wants to use clay pots like us, broken, imperfect vessels in order to show that the surpassing power to save belongs to him and not to us. Secondly, because God's message is a message of warning, let us not shrink back from warning sinners of impending judgment. Sinners not only deserve judgment, they will receive judgment. That impending judgment is a true and real warning unless they heed that warning thirdly because the only hope for a sinful world is to believe on christ and repent of their sins let us call on sinners to do both let us call on them to to believe on christ and to trust in his His finished work at calvary and let us call them to repentance true repentance as outlined here and fourthly because god relents when sinners repent let us thank him that he has relented from pouring out his wrath against sin on our behalf and instead has poured it out on Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've not repented of your sins, you've not come to a place of faith in Christ alone as your only hope for being rescued from the judgment that you now know you deserve, If you've not repented and believed, then, friend, God has not yet relented from pouring out His wrath on you. It's coming, and your only hope is to believe on Christ. God sent His one and only Son to live the perfect life that obviously none of us could, to achieve a righteousness that we must have but can't earn to die in our place on our cross, paying the price that we deserve. Believe on Christ, repent of your sin, trust in Him, and He will relent from pouring out His wrath on you. And friend, He will have poured it out on His Son in your behalf. And then we can't walk away from the third chapter of Jonah without noticing that God has a tremendous heart for the nations. Ultimately, God relented from his wrath against the people of Nineveh because he had sheep in that city who he needed to reach. And God has sheep in this city that he intends to reach. God has sheep in Indonesia and in Ghana and Papua New Guinea and elsewhere who need to be reached with the gospel. God has a heart for the nations. And he's calling on you and I to join him in that work. He plans to use broken vessels like us to deliver both the good news and the bad news of the gospel to those lost sheep so that when they repent, he will relent and he'll bring them into his fold. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... The story of Jonah's life and how you interacted with him and through him. And Father, we thank you for the picture today of how you use broken, imperfect, in process people like Jonah, like us, to do your work, to engage in your mission. Thank you that on behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room, including myself you've tapped us on the shoulder and said you're going to use us that you intend for us to hold out the gospel to our lost friends neighbors and co-workers and that we don't have to be perfect people in order to engage in that And father we thank you for the picture of true repentance father may that be true of our hearts may we call people to that unashamedly in our spheres of influence and father if there be any man or woman young person here who's not come to faith not repented of their sins father in this moment they feel the weight of your wrath they sense that separation from you they can own that separation because they know it's it's because of their own rebellion against you oh god would you in the quietness of their heart give them the faith to trust in jesus Grant them true repentance to express genuine sorrow and then call on you to forgive them through Christ alone. Would you bring some of your sheep into your fold even this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.